The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Did you miss me? No? Uh, okay. Well, welcome anyway to the first serious fun of the new season. We were on a brief hiatus over the summer, but now we're back. And we've got a full slate of exciting interviews and discussions about the complexities, challenges, and pleasures of popular culture. As always, I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, a professor in the Communication and Information Science Departments here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And I hate to start off a new season like this, but guys, gals, I've become aware of a shocking development. Video games are lying to us. Now see, I thought I was pretty good at video games, finding ways to narrowly survive enemy encounters, pulling off these amazing feats of skill and the like, but a Twitter thread posted this earlier this month by game designer Jennifer Shirley proved me wrong. See, Jennifer asked game developers to share their secret tactics and tricks at the programming and design level for encouraging and challenging players without them knowing it. So I wasn't actually a great shot, the game just gave me a more generous target area because the enemy was further away. I didn't narrowly survive, it's just that the last bullet in the chamber does more damage. Now I did feel slightly vindicated by the revelation that the xenomorph hunting you in alien isolation has two separate sets of AI, one designed to track you, the other one designed to sort of like lead you, lead the uh, thing to you, but it wasn't quite enough to make me feel better about my chances should I ever find myself on a derelict space station. Now the thread and the discussion around it are actually really interesting. They raise some fascinating questions about the processes of game design, as well as the importance of designing and constructing an environment that is welcoming and challenging to players. After I read it, I had to talk to somebody about it, and luckily, I had a game designer right down the hall from me. Ben Geisler, in addition to being one of my fellow faculty here at UWGB, is also an accomplished game designer, having worked on games like Prototype, Incredible Hulk Ultimate Destruction, Soldier of Fortune, and many more. He even ran his own studio for a while, so I figured he would be the guy to ask, and ask him I did. Here's a chat about game design and player engagement practices with Ben Geisler. Here, as always, with uh, well, not as always, this is the first time. It's it's, it's 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 been a long time coming. I'm here with my friend, colleague, and uh, you know, professor, teacher, game designer, father, <laughs> patriot, whatever you want to say, uh, Benjamin Geyser. Ben, welcome to Serious Fun. Thank you. Uh, that was that was quite an intro there. I, hopefully, I'll live up to those expectations. Uh, you know what? I don't like. I, I my big feeling is as long as the expectations are set, it almost doesn't matter if you live up to them. So that, that's <laughs> right. that's kind of my philosophy. Is I just I say stuff and then we'll see what happens. Um, so uh, you're here to talk about game design. Now, of course, you have a long history as a game designer, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and 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 really, this is something I think is fascinating because when we talk about media in general. Um, Everything in media is built around trying to make the end user of that thing feel a certain way, 
right? Or right. react a certain way, film, music, television, whatever. But games, we don't always think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And this, this is kind of what we're going to be talking about. But before we go down that path, uh, as always, I like to start off by asking for the Ben Geisler story. Where did you <laughs> start? Right. How did you get here? So actually, yeah, I mean, as far as my gaming background, it was a little bit accidental. I've always loved playing games from early on. And um, in fact, one of the stories I like to tell is how I really felt the uh, baseball on the Atari 2600 was incredibly unfair as mm-hmm. a as a eight-year-old, something like that. And I decided that I was going to fix it. And so I took apart the cartridge and started like etching on the... Um, you know, on the, on the circuitry. And of course that did nothing other than break the game. Right. But, uh, that was sort of my first interest in sort of, uh, uh, fixing what I felt was an unfair game. (laughs) And then later I would learn how to program. And, you know, eventually in college I was studying artificial intelligence. And when I got hired, the game soldier of fortune was getting lambasted in the media for having what they perceived as bad AI. Mm -hmm. And so the producer decided he wanted to hire some, uh, fresh blood um, from the AI program at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I got hired. So that was sort of my start, and I worked in at Raven for a number of years on things like Quake 4 and Giant Knight Academy and um, Soldier Fortune 2, and then I went out west to work on games. I worked in the Hulk out there, Hulk Ultimate Destruction and Prototype, and then um, I eventually came back to Wisconsin to form a studio mm-hmm. that I ran for six years, Frozen Codebase, and we made some games, probably the best heard of games we made or the most heard of games we made would have been like Burger Time World Tour, which is the most recent version of Burger Time. Uh, we also worked briefly on Metal, well, not briefly, for a year on Metalocalypse and then it got canceled. See, that's a, no, game, see, now you've told me that is, story before. <laughs> yeah. That's a fascinating story. Like, yeah, I, I don't know that if that's was, one you feel like you want to share, but like, I would not mind sharing that. Okay. At all, so yeah. I guess we could do that real quick. So yeah. just real quick background. Like I was interested because I remember hearing about this game. I was a big fan of the show Metalocalypse. It was, yeah, it was really, a great show. Yeah. If you're not familiar with it, it's essentially, it was a cartoon made by the guy who created home movies, yep. um, which was another great show. And it's literally just kind Brent, of a, Brendan Small, Brendan right? Small, Brendan yep. Small, yeah. yeah. I and got to meet him. Actually, it's yeah. literally just a send up of you know the death metal, black metal mm-hmm. kind of culture. Um, and you guys were tasked with making a game, and I remember hearing about this. I'm like, this sounds really interesting. Like they're taking a different direction with this. This could be a lot of fun. And then yeah. it never came out. It never came out. And yep. you mentioned that in <laughs> passing. And so one of the first things I remember, one of the first things I asked you, and you mentioned that is like, so what happened? <laughs> right. Like so. Brendan Small, he was it was great getting to work with him. Um, brilliant guy. Um, he had this. We had an early, early on vision of the game, and we brought it to him, which was that you would not play necessarily as the band because the band are kind of doofuses. Yeah, they don't do and anything. They don't do much. And we were like, well, maybe you can play as a clocketeer. And he loved that idea. And he sort of started expounding upon it and thinking of things the clocketeers could be doing behind the scenes to sort of help out the band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like plotting traps or doing doing the dirty work mm-hmm. for the band. Um, so, you you know, you play as a clocketeer and you're defending the band from certain disasters that would be looming at any given moment. Right. You know, like, I mean, it was always sort of like a, you'd see the band in the background um, trying to get on stage and, and they'd be suddenly attacked by zombies or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story had been written as well by one of Brendan Small's uh, writers. I'm forgetting the guy's name, but I actually still have him on. Uh, Facebook and whatnot, but he was a, he was, oh, um, John, John Schneck or John Schmeck, John Schmeck. And he was, um, he wrote the story, you know, based on what Brendan Small said. And so it went on for about a year and Konami was funding it. 
It was great. Um, I thought it was a really fun game. We, one of the big mistakes we did was we took it to Comic-Con too early and showed it. A critic really didn't like it and blasted it. Some others liked it, but this one guy blasted it really badly. And that got word to the Konami higher-ups, and they said, well, what's going on with this game? And then they didn't cancel it immediately, but they said, well, we don't want this to be a Clocketeer game. We want it to be that you're playing as the band. As Death as, Clock, yeah. As uh, Nathan Explosion right. and um, Murderface and all these other yeah. characters that are in the band. Um, and Brendan Small got wind of that. He's like, no, there's no way we are doing that. We are mm-hmm. just not doing that. <laughs> and eventually... So uh, he, just he, had was a fight. On, he was in your corner, like he yeah, liked your guys' yeah. design. He's that's what he that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. Yeah, right. and and they basically, you know, and the the sum of it, what it, what came out in IGN on it was basically the truth. It was creative differences because yeah. Brendan Small would not sign off on the new design that one of the Konami producers had made to mm-hmm. sort of satisfy that, and it was going to be like a Guitar Hero type thing, and mm-hmm. it was very different game than what right. we, what we were doing was more brutal legend. Yeah. Than anything. So like a um, beat 'em up kind of a thing. A beat 'em up sort of, yeah. yeah and, you, and yeah, it was beat 'em up, but you know, a lot of rock music in there and mm-hmm. a lot of metal, obviously pretty brutal, that kind yeah. of thing, right? Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the story. And it got canceled and really too bad. Some of the tech ended up making it into future games that we would make, but mm-hmm. um, as, as typically happens, but mm-hmm. it, it never got released and yeah, it's too bad. So, uh, so you, that was of course one of the more uh, high profile kind of ones that fell apart, but what, what were some of the most recent things you've done? Like what's the most, like, uh, so, you, cause you, you came to academia, right? Yep. So I came to academia. So talk about that transition a little bit, like the, what you worked on and then how you, how you got to teaching and everything. Yeah. So I've always wanted to go back into teaching. I really enjoy it. I like taking the experience I have from the industry and sort of bring that to the classroom. Um, but in the midst of that, uh, I was also asked, this was probably in 2013, 2014, while I was just starting teaching, mm-hmm. I was asked to help out on Batman Arkham uh, Origins. Right. And um, Origins was, uh, was, was great. Um, uh, Arkham Origin was great to work on. Um, I, I got to work with my friend Eric Holmes, who was the, the key producer on who'd go on to do things like uh, Battlefield One, I believe. Yeah. Yep. And a couple of, you know, I can't talk about what he's doing now, but of course. Um, but anyway, it was great to work with him again. And that was sort of the most recent big game I worked on was Arkham Origin. I have worked on other games since then that are sort of smaller, like Minimum, uh, which is sort of a, a MOBA type um, game that was produced by Atari, actually, <laughs> which is. Atari's been in the news recently for interesting things, I mm-hmm. thought, but um, but it, it went pretty well. Um, so I've been trying to keep my hands in games. I'm giving a talk down in Madison at the end of the month, end of October, um, on some of the stuff I'm doing my dissertation on. So I'm trying to keep my my hands in the gaming world mm-hmm. as much as I can. Um, but yeah, the most recent thing I would have, the most recent big thing I would have done would be that Batman game, which okay. was a lot of fun. So yeah, and it was it was kind of neat because I remember like when when we first uh, one of the first times I met you, we were talking about that and it was like wow, like that's like I, I know Batman, I know Ark, like a lot of the games you're talking yeah, about, yeah. it's like I I played a lot of these, so you know your stuff. And hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I try. You know more it's, than I do. Well, I don't know. That, that's that's for sure. You definitely play more games than I do. Yeah, that's probably. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's. Um, I, I can I can watch a lot of movies, but I'm not Spielberg, right? Like this. Um, so okay. So well, you're no slouch. Put it that way. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, um, but uh, so so we, again, so you're now kind of in the teaching mode. Um, we, we you and I sort of uh, developed the game design emphasis in yes. our information science program, and that's been a lot of fun. It's been very exciting. We've had a lot of cool opportunities. Um, 
So you've probably got a lot of stories and a lot of insight into how the actual process of making games happens. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Kind of how the sausage is made, so to speak, <laughs> for uh, lack of a... And it is sausage. It is absolutely, yeah. It's tasty, it's, and it's, it's it can you, be filling, but you it's don't still want to look at sausage. It closely, it's bad for right? you occasionally, like, yeah. right? If you eat too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, what we're talking and, about... And yeah, and you don't want to look at it too yeah, closely. Like, uh, so the main thing we're talking about today is uh, this uh, Twitter thread that got posted... Oh, gosh, when was this? I'm actually have to go back a little a f- bit. It was a weeks few ago. weeks ago. I want to say it was... Let's see. This I, I, I want to say it was early September, maybe. Yeah, early September, around September 1st, September 2nd, 2017. Um, and a game designer, uh, Jennifer Shirley, and I, I hope that's how you pronounce her name. If, if Jennifer's listening, I'm so sorry if I got your name wrong. Um, but she works, she's a designer with Opaque Space who's working on some virtual reality games. And she's doing a talk at one of the game developers conferences. I want to say it was in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, that's, what, that's, the, that's from context, that's what it was. But again, I know there was a lot on Twitter about this. Yeah. So she just throw the question out there, basically asking, hey, game designers, what are some mechanics that you hide from players to try to get a certain feeling across? And I showed this to you, and we were talking about mm-hmm. it. And I know you had some thoughts on this, but you know the idea of... And some of, these are some of the ones that uh, came to mind. Um, for example, Assassin's Creed and Doom, they give players just a little bit more value for their last couple hit points to get that feeling across that you just mm-hmm. barely survived, right? <clears throat> or in Bioshock, the first shot from an enemy always misses mm-hmm. to give you a chance to react. It's just little things like that that are, again, right. aimed at that player experience. So I guess I could start off by asking, what have you and the teams you've worked on done um, when you're developing games that are kind of aimed at creating feelings like that? Like, do you, do you kind of work backward from like what you want the player to feel and then figure out how to get there? Or uh, like, how does that process work? I, I kind of think some of it, unfortunately, is implicit, uh, meaning that when you figure out sort of what what kind of game you're making and what you're tar- I think it comes down a lot a lot of a lot of times to target market mm-hmm. um, because I'll give sort of a counter example to this I the one about the first shot always missing in the Bioshock game um, there there was a game I worked on Soldier of Fortune two which we were trying to be like this hardcore shooter almost like Arma style mm-hmm. and um, there that sentence would almost make sense that we would have done that if it mm-hmm. would say the first shot from the player always misses right. <laughs> because it was a very you know dark souls like punishing sort of game right um it's meant to be a very different kind of feeling it's a different feeling right it's like yeah. it's it's like a very much like if you can finish this you are amazing mm-hmm. you know and, and most people don't finish it kind of thing um and i think that you know figuring out that that was our target market was important for that game um Apparently, you know, maybe what they figured out in Bioshock was they wanted to be more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that becomes really important when you're thinking about what, what you know, how you want to help the player. Emotion does come into it, certainly, because I think for different age groups, that's going to be more appropriate. Like certain age groups and certain, certain not even ages, but certain groups of people might not want to put up with what I mentioned from, say, Dark Souls or Soldier right. Fortune 2. Um, they might want more of like a, a you know, a, a feeling of of that victory that, well, maybe some might say, well, it's not deserved, but, you know, frankly, we're just trying to get after that feeling, right. you know, so. Would you say that, and uh, I'll circle back around with that in a second, but you brought up that yeah. interesting phrase, target market. Right. Um, <laughs> Would you say that, because uh, we have this conversation a lot, and it's usually from people who are trying to complain because something that's problematic in their, in their games got taken out, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, this is censorship. They're censoring the artistic design. Mm-hmm. 
of, of the creator by not letting me adjust the size of my character's breast to a comical degree. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So my question to you is, do you think that, like, where does it normally start in your experience? Is there a target market and a target sort of financial thing you're trying to hit? Or is there a creative artistic design that comes first? Which is it? Uh, you, <laughs> That's more a often good than question. not, I know it's, 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 it's going to vary yeah, from project yeah. to project, but... I think it does vary from project to project. One example I would have of it coming from a very creative side would be the creation of the game Prototype, uh, mm-hmm. which ended up being, they had two of those, and it's it, getting a little bit dated now, but it was a very popular franchise, similar to Infamous. They just did a H, like a... Um so they do a version of it for PlayStation 4. Oh, good. Yeah, for okay. Contemporary for systems. PS4? Yeah. Okay. It was like cool. a bundle pack, I think. I, yeah, so Activision is still look, supporting it somewhere. Yeah, they yeah. re-released it, so. Cool. So anyway, I was in the room when, when Eric Holmes sort of presented us with that idea, and um, no one had heard of it before this. It was just about four or five of us in the room, a team that had just finished Hulk Ultimate Destruction. And he presented it as this idea that you would just sort of get powers from things you defeated, and that gradually... You that that became you, you know, like mm-hmm. you became the things that you were defeating. That's how you were getting your powers, and that was the concept, very much from the artistic side, very much from the that is the feeling you want to get side, which is much different than actually the game we had done prior to that, which we knew Hulk, for example, mm-hmm. was a successful franchise. So maybe that came more from the sense of what kind of target market, given who we, given what we know about Hulk and what mm-hmm. we know about the fan base of Hulk is. So I think those were two very different like, um, ways you go about the initial synthesis of what the game right. idea is. Well, and I think both are valid, but... Right. And, and certainly working with an established media property like Hulk, there's certain expectations, right? We can't really right. make a, you know, <clears throat> Telltale Games Presents the Hulk, right? It's right. Well, although they of... did Telltale, uh, or no, am I thinking of this wrong? Telltale Batman? There's Telltale Batman, Telltale Batman and they did yeah, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. And they did with, Guardians, But yeah, Hulk yeah. is not a talking character, and those true, are talking true, games right, for the right. most part, right? Story-driven yeah. and all that, yeah. So, yeah. You gotta, so you probably have to make some concessions, especially working with licensed properties. Yeah, I you'd imagine. have to get Bruce Banner involved, and that would just be a mess anytime yeah. you get him involved in a video game. Yeah, and you know, Traditionally, he's not the part of the Hulk that people tune in <laughs> right, for. Right, exactly. Yeah. Ruffalo's handsome, but we're there to see the big guy, right? right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so that, but I find that kind of interesting because especially like going through and looking at like design documents and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you can definitely see kind of like one of the first things that's in there is what's our market yep. going to yep, be definitely. like and, and how do we, what kind of features are they looking for? What kind of things do we present? Yep. So I just find that interesting because um, the, the, the idea of like um, there are certainly auteurs work in the games industry especially mm-hmm. in the indie space and that kind of yeah. thing but a lot of it is just feels like it is kind of left up to this thing like our shareholders need this the market wants right, this right so this is what we're going to include kind of whether it makes sense or not right, right. like exactly was there was there anything yeah, that I kind mean, of came that, up in your work that, that um, reflected that yeah i mean i think that the the best example i have of that honestly was one of the easier projects i've ever worked on and and we got paid really well and it was great but and, and that's what it comes down to. We're trying to put food on the table for, right. for our families and whatnot. So that's an important thing that the project went well. But it was basically, I would almost consider it shovelware. It was, we, had, we did a project that was very much Wii Sports-like because that was the bandwagon that everyone was mm-hmm. jumping on at the time. It was called um, Cruise Ship Vacation Games mm. on the Wii. Oh, the Cruise Ship Vacation cruise Games. Ship va- the Cruise Ship Woo. Vacation Games, yes. <laughs> uh, much forgotten, I mean, you know, it... I can't even remember the. There was another title that was similar to Cruise Ship Vacation Games, um, that that PopCap had put out at the time. Right. That w- it was like 
something and yeah there it is on yeah the I, I had to go look it up yeah, while you were talking sorry this game was basically analyzing the target market mm-hmm. which was uh we sports players and saying how can we capitalize on that so we had games in here that we sports didn't we had like shuffleboard and trap shooting trap shooting there was yeah. like a rock climbing and and it was all based around that you were on a cruise ship and these are the things you can do on a cruise ship, you know? So if yeah. you can imagine they have a rock climbing wall sure. there or whatever. It's kind of weird um, that they let people have guns on a cruise ship. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know where that, <laughs> I think, I think the guy that, if I remember right, the guy that was the producer over at, and we did this for THQ out in my, uh, Minneapolis. Mm. If I remember right, I think the guy that was producing it out there at THQ was big into like trap shooting or something. There was some, Someone involved with this right. really liked that idea that you would be on a cruise ship and you'd be like shooting guns. So I don't know. I mean, does that happen it, a lot where like somebody just is really a fan of something and it gets in the game? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, it's really kind of strange how often that happens is you get someone in a position of power and they're like, oh, I really want this thing. And, yeah. you know, no one wants to make them sad. So yeah. they get their thing. I, I know, like, because uh, <laughs> I've been following with great interest and sadness uh, the new Marvel versus Capcom game which has like the weirdest roster of characters ever. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, and one of them it. is the Bionic Commando from the remake they did back in like 2009, <laughs> 2010, where it's like they gave him like just angry looking like dreadlocks and stuff like that. And uh, apparently the, the speculation is that he's in the game only because one of the people designing the game was a pro player um, of Marvel vs. Marvel Capcom 3, which Oh, and was. that's the guy who was always the one play. he used, okay. so he pushed really hard to get that version of the character, who has not been relevant otherwise. For like 10 years or yeah. something, yeah. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm looking at, like, you know, why is this guy in here? But it's like, oh, okay, so apparently he had a fan yeah. behind the scenes. Like, yeah. Well, uh, we had, like, on... On some of the some of the Raven games, we had like the faces of some of the producers as random, you know, like like guys you could shoot and right. stuff, which is always <laughs> like like they were like they were terrorists or something, if sure. I remember right, like because you know, that was all just a game based on Delta Force type stuff, so. right? Um, so I mean that happens all the time that you get like some person of importance like yeah. in there, you know, yeah, goofy little. I remember like yeah. John Romero hit his head in. Yeah, Romero was in. Yeah, he was a boss or something. Wasn't he like in like that. all the ones he ever made? I, I'm not I sure. Wanna, Maybe not. I think but, I almost Doom one or two, but I think there's one where you actually like find a hidden room where you can fight him. So, oh yeah, I heard about that. I can't remember which one it was. I feel like don't one, you like always lose or something too? I, don't, or something? I, I, I know it's a hard it. fight, but yeah. I never. Yeah. I'd, but again, like I feel like if you're working on a game long enough, you probably just have to put stuff like that in there yeah. to kind of amuse yourself, right? I remember that we had, I think I remember what you're talking about, because a guy that currently works at Telltale, Jason Kim, that was working with me at Frozen Codebase on Telltale, I remember he made a room at one point, and he referenced that, and he's like, I'm going to do just that, and I'm going to put like this crazy guy in this room and you're just never going to win. Right. I mean, I think that was his take on it was you're probably, just gonna, yeah. it was like an Easter egg. Like you trip over something and then mm-hmm. you just, you're just, you lose, but yeah. just Easter eggs are fun. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so kind of circling back around to this idea, like if we yeah. start with like that, the idea of like the player experience is, uh, you know, so it's not just like what the market demands, but also what you want the player to take away from it on some level. Right. Right. The feeling of being empowered, the feel of being outgunned, the feeling of just barely surviving. Right. So like how, what are some ways like in, in the games you've worked on that you've tried to kind of create that feeling in the player? Right. So I think that, um, I think a lot of times it comes down to, to balance because, for example, um, some of the games we worked on, like uh, if you if you look at Scary Girl, which was a, a frozen code based game, um, we really wanted to help you. It was a it was an indie title where Scary Girl could sort of 
shoot out her arms and grab onto things and sort of swing. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want it to be such, it was a platformer. Right. So we didn't want it to be such that you would always be falling to your death in the game mm-hmm. uh, because that's no fun in platformers. Um, so I think a lot of the things we did were making uh, platforming puzzles uh, less challenging in the sense of you know maybe bringing some of those platforms closer so you could actually get onto the ledges, making the, uh, the, the technical arms automatically secure to things as opposed to you having to get a dead-on hit. Right. So sort of like when that technical arm goes out to the hook, there would be some calculation that would say like, oh, you're within an okay radius, so we're right. just going to connect you. Okay. You know, so, like auto-aim almost. So, so it kind of gave you like a margin of error. Right, right. Okay. And I mean, I think that kind of stuff happened even in the game I mentioned before where we were trying to be really hardcore. Uh, we did some of that where right. we had a little bit of auto aim on. Mm-hmm. That was a first person shooter. But so I think there's always some degree of helping. Right. And it's that, just a matter of how much you do. And I find that kind of interesting because you have this sort of contingent in the video games community right now um, where you have a lot of players who are looking for games that are specifically designed to be brutally difficult. Right. Your Dark Souls. We mentioned the Dark Souls. Yeah, and the, uh, that kind of well, thing. Well, League of Legends almost at a at a tournament level, that's sort right. of how that is, yeah. Yeah, and, and so they're looking at these, um, and I actually in one of the uh, research papers I did uh, for my dissertation, I, we, I asked, we, we were talking about this, and um, you know, I was speaking to a journalist who said something like, I posed the question once, you know, don't we want games to be more accessible? Don't we want games to be mm-hmm. more open to everybody? And I, she's like, I was surprised. I got the response back saying, no, no, we don't want that. <laughs> right. I want to be able to say this is a thing I can do that nobody else can do. Interesting. Like, and and, and that yeah. stuck with me because I find that, I, I feel like that's where a lot of that sort of, because um, this is a niche, right? This is not like right. the mass market. Like Dark Souls, Bloodborne, no matter how many, how much the people who love Bloodborne, these games yeah. want to think they're the biggest things going, they're really not. Right? They're you know they're they're being dwarfed by the kind of more mainstream AAA games. But they still have that really loyal fan base, and it does I think become this sort of performative thing, like saying, "I want to be better." Or I want right, to demonstrate right. that I'm good at this. But what you're saying is kind of like, maybe you're not really as good as you think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm sure, I, I don't know Dark Souls. I mean, I don't know any of the developers from that, but I'd imagine they do some degree right. of assistance. I mean... Or maybe like a, a window that might give you the benefit of the doubt or something. Yeah, like or, or yeah. at the very least, some play tests that right. basically say, well, we just played this for, you know, a bunch of, we just had a bunch of people play this game and no one got through level two. Um, it, within a couple hours, mm-hmm. so we're gonna make some adjustments. Yeah, so like maybe we need to go back and tweak this a little bit. Tweak it, yeah, just to make it like possible. Right. So yeah, I mean, I kind of think the idea, and I hate to ruin everyone's parade on that, but I, I you know, I, I think the idea that that's sort of like um, I'm the only one that can beat this because it's it's so like yeah. you know I'm I'm so amazing at. I think that's kind of it's it's different than sports in a way, right? right. Because in sports, you know, if you're playing competitive football or basketball or whatever you're playing, everyone's trying to do their best. But in this situation, we're trying to entertain the player. As you mm-hmm. said before, we're trying to get an emotion right. out of them. I mean, I think the only situation in which you could truly say that would probably be esports, where mm-hmm. um, it takes some of the uh, developer feel and the emotion out of it. Right. It sort of drills it down to really a sport in mm-hmm. that case. Um, but Everything outside of that single player, all that mm-hmm. stuff, I don't know how you could possibly make a game that's truly not at some level helping mm-hmm. the player because you got to think of like tutorials and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, there's so many ways we mm-hmm. help the player. Well, and, and I find it interesting too because I'm looking at like, I've been playing Destiny 2, right? Yep. 
um, whenever I get the chance, I'll, I'll pop in and do some things. So I decided I, I had a mission where it's like, okay, go play this many games or get this many kills in the multiplayer. So I said, sure. So I went in there and I noticed as I was playing, I was actually probably doing better than I do in most games of this type. And I noticed like, as I was like aiming down my sights and shooting at other players, I, the, the cursor, my, my, uh, mm-hmm. my, my, my sights follow them just a little bit. Oh, I and see. And so there's yeah. like a little bit of an aim assist thing going on. And I'm like, this is probably why I'm doing better. Like it's interesting. It's correcting yeah. for my natural inability to aim correctly. Hmm. Like That's I am a terrible so, shot. And yet I'm kind of like, oh, and, I'm, and that I'm was in multiplayer. This. Yeah. And yeah, it's, which is it, it's certainly yeah. not a thing where like, it's not going to be where I'm just like, whipping around and getting like you know dead on accurate shots but when a player is like moving or jumping through the air i felt it was like sort of correcting a little bit and giving me sort of an honest opportunity to try to track them and follow them and certainly it helped and i mean i have no illusions about the fact that i'm good um when i play a game like that if i get surprised i will just start like unloading my gun but it's always like three inches away from the thing i'm trying to hit (laughs) right that's so that i'm able to kind of like pull this off i'm like there is definitely something going on behind the scenes like i can feel it um, and, I, and I find that fascinating because I think in, in that game in particular, it is not really meant to be a skill-based competitive shooter. It's more... That's interesting. Yeah, like it's more of like a big adventure RPG thing you do that just happens to be a first-person Right, shooter. so that one, I wonder if in the long run we'll see that Destiny 2 has less of a potential for things like esports and games yeah. where, um, you know, like competitive first-person shooters that really maybe the players wouldn't want that. Maybe they wouldn't mm-hmm. want any, mo- any amount of auto-aim or something. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, because yeah, there's yeah. In, uh, in Overwatch, another game by the same company, mm-hmm. there really isn't any. And that's and yeah, that's I can't got... remember. My son plays that a lot, and I play it with him, and I I, I can't remember any yeah. major auto-aim. I mean, like, you know, sometimes the hitboxes of, of actually, like, you know, letting you know where you can hit are a little generous. But, you know, in terms of the actual auto-aim, like, but then again, that one is sort of designed to be an eSport. Right. That's designed to be yeah. competitive. As so, opposed to, as you said, Destiny 2. It, it, right. In which case, we kind of circle back to it all comes to what you're trying to capture and destiny right. Two, as you said, it's more of the adventure feel right. for it, the open world adventure. And that's what you're trying to capture mm-hmm. as opposed to you're dropped into an arena basically, which is yeah. overwatch sort of, I so mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, like, it's a big arena, but it's still an arena, you know, right. it's still, you know, like, do we focus on the single player or do we focus on the multiplayer? Do we focus right. on the competitive stuff or do we focus on the fact that you just, you're basically picking this up to run around with your friends and shoot aliens in the face. Like, what do you, right. like, what are we, what are we trying to do here? Which I think in that case, Destiny Two succeeds at. Right. right. So I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not not a slam on that or anything. It's no. just more to say like what what you're actually trying to do with the game. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I found how interesting in this in this thread how much it was sort of coming from this very kind of like granular or very like very broken down thing where it's happening at a level of the game where you would not really notice it unless you knew that it was there, right? Right, right. We're talking like, you know, changing the the hit detection from zero to one when, right. when a bullet is in this location mm-hmm. or something like that. And do you, do you guys, when, you, when you're designing a game, do you think that closely about this stuff? Like, when, do you, like, how far down do you really drill down to create these perspectives or create these feelings? I think at times pretty far. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that um, you're, you know, like if you think about it this way, the level that, people are playing that's been played thousands of times by the developers and the QA staff and whatnot. So to the point where a good game, I would, you know, a game that's a triple a sort of title, mm-hmm. I would really, I would really doubt that any of those are like sort of surprises. I think they mm-hmm. are all intentional and they sort of 
were were intentional sort of decisions that were made right. because of either play tests or the QA came over and said, "Hey, this is really hard," mm-hmm. um, or it's just part of the overarching like story or structure that they right. wanted to they wanted to do. Well, when you talk about like the AAA development, for those listening who don't know what AAA games are, oh. they're basically um, just the big blockbuster ones, like. You know, okay, so for example, if Avengers or Guardians of the Galaxy comes out in theaters, it's not going to be as necessarily um, like uh, thought-provoking or philosophical as like a small-scale right. like indie like a Sundance movie. film or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. These are movies that are made for broad appeal to mass audiences and have huge budgets associated with them, so they kind of have to be. Right. right? So, so do you think that a lot of it just comes from that? Like, we've spent so much money on this, we can't leave anything to chance in terms of whether or not people are going to play this because <laughs> yeah, we don't want I mean, them to trade it back in, right? Right, and I mean, because it's so profitable driven right? right because and in some cases you can be in a studio and if if they have like one one miss in terms of their profit margins they might be out that whole right. studio might be laid off so no one wants to get in a situation where they're not selling enough units mm-hmm. and um yeah there's a lot of uh time and care taken into those um you know i think of one thing i always think of in terms too of uh catering the experience towards the player is uh something we noticed in the original half-life um we, uh, when Soldier of Fortune 2 was being made, Half-Life came out about a month or two after we started, you know, production, which was a big shock because it was so amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. Half-Life was just amazing at the time. And um, one of the, probably one of the best games that's ever, you know, been released. And uh, the AI in there, everyone was saying it was great. We ended up sort of decomposing that game, not as developers, because we were almost more like hardcore players at that point, because we weren't the developer. We weren't right. Valve. We were a different company. Um and we figured out that the the AI sequence where you first see the um, the the um, not the shop but the whatever the the humans that come in and start shooting you they're like black clothed and oh, they're, the the combine yeah the combine yeah, whenever yeah. the combine first comes in um, that's a can sequence and you see them like throwing back grenades at you and stuff mm-hmm. like that that's all just early on, that's all just a scripted can sequence. And it seems like they're dynamic, right. reactive AI, just, you know, oh, they just threw my own grenade back at me. Um, but really, it turns out that, that that was just a scripted sort of really contrived example that you can break if you're good enough at, right. if you know that it's coming up. So is there a lot of that kind of reverse engineering thing where it's like, I played this in this game, let me dig into it if I can get like access to the code or try to figure out like how they built it? Is it, And then see yeah. how I can kind of improve that later. Is there a lot of that happening? I think there is. I mean... There, I think there used to be more. Um, as a community, I think we've become more open to telling people how we've done things. Mm-hmm. And Valve is a good example of that. After Half-Life was released a few months later, they, they were sending their developers out to things like Game Developer Conference and talking about how they actually did the AI. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are studio secrets that won't be shared. Right. But for the most part, if it's some new technology, it's probably going to permeate the whole rest of the industry because eventually... Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of what one of the things they say about the industry is it's like the um, the people never change it's just the places they work at so right. they're going to go to somewhere else and they're going to mm-hmm. start doing the same thing it's, it's, that they did at Valve or whatever it's and, probably pretty common for somebody like like yourself to have worked at a bunch of different studios and a bunch of different projects it's right probably relatively uncommon to stay at one place your entire it career, is I it's, it is yeah. really uncommon yeah yeah okay so that, that's kind of interesting because it does almost lend in a weird way a sort of consistency to the philosophy of game design. And, you know, even though, like, like, like you said, like the idea that the, the people are the same, no matter where they go, right. like it's you weird. can almost see like, it, and it kind of creates, even though again, it's, it's, we don't see auteurs happening so much in 
video games we do in film and that sort of thing, like sometimes you can tell, oh, so-and-so probably had a hand in designing this because it sure oh, reminds yeah. me a lot of this, right? right. So this is kind of interesting. It's sort of like, uh, you know, for people who really want to get into it, it'd be a fun thing to look for is just seeing it. That would be an interesting sort yeah. of game studies project mm-hmm. is to sort of track like various developers, mm-hmm. not necessarily huge name people. Like you're going to, you know, like you mentioned Romero and there's yeah. people like that that you can sort of, you know where they're going or Warren Spector or someone. But, right. But more of like actual like, you know, programmers and or things like that, or artists, and what mm-hmm. what impact they've had across different games they've worked on. Is there a theme to right. that? You know, or even within like um, you know, especially with many uh, developers getting bought out by these bigger publishers, right? Mm-hmm. Like Activision owns Blizzard, and they also yep. own Bungie and a bunch of other things. What I find fascinating is how much overlap there can be sometimes in the sort of philosophy and design of the games mm-hmm. between, like when Destiny came out, like it, a lot of the art style reminded me of Warcraft. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of... And you can, oh, that way. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And yeah. I kind of feel like some of the game design for Destiny is sort of pulled from, you know, like there's probably inspired by, maybe even like they had meetings with people at Blizzard probably, to kind of yeah. pick their brains about how they did certain things to get that... Or they might have just hired some artists from there. That's also I mean, true, yeah. I know a guy that um, that worked on Destiny and before he worked there, he was, he was part of whatever that Microsoft studio is that made like... Shadowrun and, and mm-hmm. that stuff. So I know he was somewhere else, and then he went there, and that just happens all the time. Um, right. And and you know, if you hire like a concept artist that has a certain style, mm-hmm. that's going to permeate through all the modeling, all right. the art, and eventually it's going to show up in the game. Right. Like, so, like I can think of a few artists where it's like you know, you when you see them on something, you're like, oh, this is going to look a lot like the other things they have done. Like right. I think uh, Shinkawa, who did Metal Gear. Oh, um, Shinkawa. Yeah, yeah Shinkawa yeah, yeah, does yeah. does work for other games as well. And when you see it, it's like. I bet you this is going to look a lot like Metal Gear because right. it's going to have that same style that he had. It's that aesthetic, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like if you're into that, it's it kind of, it's almost like a way to sell the game that would True. Be, you know, yeah. maybe they wouldn't be interested in the game otherwise, but oh, if this guy's doing the the mecha designs or whatever, I might be into this, right? right? That's that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I find that it's that's kind of an, it's that's that's an interesting idea that I hadn't really thought about. Yeah. Um so when when you're designing a game, how yeah. much of it do you think is because we talk about the idea of designing a player experience and that sort of thing but i feel like there's two sort of philosophical ways of looking at designing games and you can correct me if i'm wrong one of them is the player as collaborator right Mm -hmm. that we are creating something the player is bringing their own experience skills background all that stuff to bear Mm -hmm. and working with what we are designing to create some sort of outcome right to create an outcome. Okay. Right. The other would be the player is kind of our antagonist and we are trying <laughs> to find a way to outwit them and keep them from solving our game too quickly um, <laughs> right, or, right. Or, or finishing it too fast and trading it in or something right. like that. I guess my first question down this line is which do you think um, happens more regularly in terms of like the, the mindset? And yeah. I mean, I think one way sort of leads to success and the other way doesn't. I right. mean, if you can be a collaborating with your players in the sense that they feel like they're making a new experience out of it, in which mm-hmm. case they really are. I mean, in some of these open world games, you can do things that, you know, we talk about emergent behavior and whatnot in the, I know in your game design mm-hmm. class and um, that that's, you know, things that maybe emerge from the gameplay that really they're creating that experience and they're part of the collaboration of it. Um, but I think that, you know, if you take the antagonist approach, um, and that's sort of found out, then that can sort of lead down a bad path you don't right. even want to go to. So I think that, unfortunately, that might be happening more often than we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Because 
it's very easy to go down that path where you're sort of like, well, we've evaluated the market and we know that we need a game, our gameplay to be like 30 hours of single player or whatever it is these days. I don't know. It keeps going up, right? There's some, it seems that in reviews, there's some, every year it magically goes up by like five right. hours and now you need 40 hours of gameplay. Yeah. Or and it's weird you know? that that whole notion of gameplay as like a, a, um, cost per unit, right? Like right. for every hour of gameplay, it costs me this. If I buy a game for $60, I expect at least 60 hours of right, gameplay right. to get like a dollar an hour of value. Um, and, and I wonder too, if that might actually be causing some of the problems we see in game design where it's like, you know, you have people complain, well, this game's too padded. It's too long. Right, or like right. It's just a bunch exactly. of nonsense. Um, you know, because I feel that way about Destiny sometimes, where it's just like, right. here's a list of things to do, like a, like like a laundry, <laughs> right, right. like a, like a grocery list. Mm-hmm. Go here, do three of this. Go here, bring do this three of thing that. to someone, or yeah. yeah and yeah. then you're just like using the same like environments and assets to kind of just like yeah. okay, and you're putting like different mission triggers and dialogue in right. to give the illusion of having more going right. on right. because it's expensive to make this stuff, right? It right. costs money to make new planets and characters yep. Yep. and environments. Um, and I find that fascinating because like it, to me, it's like, I, f- I feel like a lot of gamers want all of their games to cost 20 bucks and be <laughs> right. something they can play for 200 hours. I know it, it's so it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it used to be less. It used to be like people would expect 10 hours or something of, mm-hmm. for a $50 game, you know, but now, you know, now it's up to $60 and suddenly we're expected to do 50 or 60 yeah. hours. And then, but yet a movie to go see in the theater costs like 10 bucks to see. And that's two hours. So I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Um, you know, and I think that it does lead to that, that sort of, well, if that's what you guys want, okay, we put a bunch of filler in Mm -hmm. and then you'll buy the game because some reviewer didn't trash it because it was only 30 hours long, you know, and everyone's focused on that. They're worried that some reviewer is going to diss it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And they just sort of hyper-focus on that. I mean, you've got companies paying incentives, to get game ranking scores and Metacritic scores over a certain percent. Like, oh, if this game gets over 80%, we'll give you guys a bonus, right. you know, as a Metacritic score. And I mean, so everyone's worried about that. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, how can we not, you know, sort of um, make everyone upset because we're, we only have 30 hours. But if that's a good 30 hours, for me personally, I'm different. I'm not going to, I don't have 30 hours to play right, a game. You know either. what I mean? So I'd rather have quality, like a gone home type situation, right. you know, gone home where it's like an hour games. or two long yeah. and it's just amazing. Yeah. It's one of the you best know? games of the last decade. And yeah. You can play it in like 90 minutes. Yeah. Like that to me, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like I feel that a lot of the sort of conversation you get where it says, I need to have this crazy hour to dollar ratio yeah. is from younger, uh, from younger players who might not yeah. necessarily be able to buy this, you know, like, and, and, I, and I feel like the, and I, I talk about this in class, like there's this universal truth that as you get older, the amount of money potentially <laughs> yeah. you have right. to buy stuff versus the time goes, goes up, <laughs> right, but yeah, right. your time goes down. Right. So it's like, if you, if, like I am willing to maybe consider paying $60 for a game that's six hours long, but is really good for six right, hours. Exactly. Right. Same like, here. Yeah. And it, and maybe it'll give me some stuff to do afterward if I want to keep playing it. Right. But just to fool around or whatever. Yeah. yeah like, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's one of the nice things about Destiny is the campaign is really only right. like you could finish it in like maybe three to five hours. Mm-hmm. Um, then of course you can play it for like 300 more. But, um, that, so I kind of appreciated that, which kind of brings me to another question that we could talk about here in a second is that notion of valuing the player's time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because this comes up a lot in reviews. Like, I feel this game valued my time. Mm-hmm. I got right into the action. I got right into 
um, the the, uh, the thing I wanted to do, and right. it didn't waste my time trying to explain it to me or offering a ton of story or you know putting me on these dumb little fetch quests. Um, <laughs> right? How how do you square that as a designer? Like, how much are you trying to kind of think about that in the back of your head? Like, am I going to create something that the players actually going to feel like they got value out of the time spent? I think that's a that's a I think that's a good trend mm-hmm. in, in game um, journalism because. Um, that's probably what we would want to be doing is mm-hmm. just valuing time in the sense of we want these to be ma- meaningful experiences because we don't necessarily, most developers I know don't get into games because they want to be rich. They get into games because they enjoy making them, right. you know, and they really enjoy playing them as well. And they want a meaningful experience just like we all do. So, I mean, the money comes in from the side of, you know, yeah, we got to pay the rent and all that, turn on the lights and whatever. But at the same point, everyone realizes that if the game doesn't sell enough units, you're not going to make another one. And so they want people to be, you know, happy with what they purchased. So I'm really appreciative that that trend is happening with the idea of valued time, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of developers are going to latch onto that and really say, okay, well, if you guys, if that's the direction we're going now, great. And we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll start thinking about how do we have a really great 40 hours as opposed to 60 or something, mm-hmm. which is a huge difference. Right. And like, cause there are some games that can actually pull off that thing where you, this is a hundred hours long. And for the most part, it's a good hundred hours, right? right? Like I think the persona four did that pretty well where that's a long, that game, is a long game, but I've been playing that for actually, the most yeah. part, like you don't really lose the thread. Like every it's right. something's constantly happening, right. but that I feel like the budget and the scope of that game is going to be very different than a game that you're spending probably, you know, the the hundreds of millions of dollars developing. Yeah. Where it's like you have to get this part right and then by the time you get that part right, you still have to hit that hundred, twenty or two hundred hour mark. So here's a bunch of So then you start yeah. adding things and Yeah. Which can't I mean, you know, if you get to the point in your game where you're like, okay, well we got a really great game, but it's only twenty hours and then someone tells you you gotta add content. On the plus side, at least you've gotten to the stage where you have that 20 hours and it's really good. And then maybe it makes it easier for you to add additional things because it's kind of like the mentality of that, that valve used to take. And I've been talking a lot about valve, but they're a great company, but um, they take the approach of we're going to finish the game. They did this with half-life one and two, I believe we finish the game and then we toss out all the levels and then we make the game. Right. So like that's, that makes a better game, I think, sure. but usually you don't have the money to do it. No. And so, Valve's in a very unique position that where they do have the money. To do right. It, and, yeah. and of course they, they don't really make video games anymore. Either. Right. That's true. I mean, they, they become, we're more all of, sitting here waiting for news about half-life three. And well, did you see that? Um, I don't know if you saw this, but the head writer for Valve actually put out a sort of thinly veiled fan fiction. Oh, really? And okay. basically changed the names for legal purposes, but it is wow. he's basically admitted like this was the plot for half Oh, interesting. Two, no, I hadn't three. heard that. Yeah, yeah, it's worth looking up. Um I want to say Laidlaw or something. That's I think that's his name. Laidlaw? Yeah, and uh oh, Jonathan or something? Mark Mark, okay, I, I guess that's... I, I, okay, so I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I did, we didn't do a ton of research coming into this stuff. Um, it's all right. But, We're just off on various tangents. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah but but uh, yeah, he actually put it out on his blog, um, and people very quickly cracked the code as to what was uh, actually happening. Um, interesting. And it is, that is basically speculation that him, of him just saying, this game will probably never get made. Yeah, and this that's... This is the closure. There that was earlier, like maybe about a year ago, there was someone had said on Shaq or something from Valve that... No one, no one at Valve that used to be interested in doing Half Life Three is here anymore. Right. <laughs> Which was basically like, oh, is this? The yeah, this is it. Yeah, Mark Laidlaw. Mark Laidlaw. Okay. If, yeah, if, yeah, if you're yeah. interested, look up Epistle Three. 
Um, Epistle three. Okay. Yeah, and he'll pretty much tell you about that. That's interesting. So yeah, yeah. So oh well, but yeah. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're probably a more profitable company for not making video games, which is kind of a messed up thing to think about, right? Like that is that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to it. Frankly, it's hard to make money at games these days, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I give a lot of props to the indie developers for what they're going through because that's truly a labor of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to, you know, sort of like not have a job for a couple of years while you make a video game right. and just do it for the love of it, that's mm-hmm. that's great. But, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, it's tough. Like I was... Um, a quick shout out to David Craddock who wrote... He writes kind of these really uh, fascinating little sort of mini novellas about game development. And he was talking about Shovel Knight, the game Shovel Knight. And oh, yeah. Basically, like he's saying, yeah... You played the, it, I heard about it. Yeah, it's a great game. And uh, if you haven't played it, Top notch. Um, but uh, he talks about like these people were basically just working out of their garage. They maxed out their credit cards. They yeah. had to like, you know, find like emergency loans and borrow right. money from family right. just to get this game out the door. Now, of course, the game came out and was a massive hit and they're all doing very well now. But, right. you know, it is that kind of uncertainty. It's a very tr- uh, tricky thing. Yeah. If, unless you're kind of in one of those big AAA studios. And then you've got a little bit of cushion. And, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's still not a guarantee, right? Right. Like, you know, you, you, said, you still could. I mean, like what I, you know. I left Radical before the massive layoff, but they went down from 300 employees to, I think they have about 15 now. Right. You know? So, I mean, it happens. I And I, I, I attribute a lot of that due to the fact that Prototype 2 didn't do as well as mm-hmm. they wanted it to. Now, you know? Even though it did okay, but it didn't do as well as they wanted. So that stuff happens all the time. So you're still not safe. Right. Um, the truth is... Most of those people are still working in the industry, though. Right. It's sort of like Hollywood, where you know you're an actor and you do a movie, and then you go mm-hmm. on and you do another movie. It's really turning into that model. It's like yeah, people just like, moving around. So, so the practice of where essentially you're almost like um, itinerant as as a game developer. Yeah, you're, you're like the talent or something. Yeah. You know, like, and like so you're, you're sort of hired on for a brief amount of time, right. almost like seasonal work. And then once the work's done, once crunch is over you're kind of shown the door and then you have to just hope your next gig yeah, lines up in which time, is right? i don't know there's good things and bad things about that model i mean yeah um mostly bad i would say yeah. but there are some nice ideas about it in the sense of mm-hmm. um you know allowing people to work with new people they haven't worked with before and uh studios to sort of justify the costs and stuff but for the most part it's not a great life to be living right um, Unless but, you're out west and you yeah. can easily move between yeah, companies, yeah, but, yeah it's just you know. like you know, you don't you don't have to change your commute much. You're just driving right, right. Like two I blocks mean, it makes away. it hard for us developers that are yeah. in Wisconsin, for example, where okay, you can work at Raven or Human Head, and that's basically about right. it. I mean, other than a bunch of startups, but you know, other than that, that's basically about it. Right. So yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a fascinating industry for a lot of reasons um, like that. Um, let me see here. Let me pull my notes back up. I'm just trying to make sure. Like, here's a quick peek behind the curtain. I'm, I'm working off of notes. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let me ask you a question here. Um, and we've, we've talked about a lot of things we've, uh, about game design, that sort of thing. What is the, you know, either the game or the thing that you have worked on that, or maybe an aspect of something you've worked on that you're most proud of, that when you're teaching your classes or you're talking to your kids and you say, like, this is what I've done. What's the thing that comes up to you? Like, this is the thing that I feel unquestionably proud of, that we really did something good here. Oh, that's an interesting question. So I think to date, it's still my work on Hulk Ultimate Destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the lead AI programmer on that. Uh, of course, lead in that case didn't mean all that much because we only had three people working on the AI gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, we we made a lot of uh, enemies for that, for Hulk to fight, like mm-hmm. Abomination and some of the Hulk busters. The AI for that was just a lot of fun to make, and it ended up that we did a lot of balance actually speaking of balance um and a lot of play testing to the point where i think that the 
it stood up pretty well. And actually, it was the best-ranked superhero game for a while until Arkham mm-hmm. City, or was it Arkham Asylum? One I of think the, Asylum was first. Asylum so, knocked it knocked it down. But City might have taken over from there. I'm not. And then I think City sure. became yeah. the yeah yeah. So I think I think right now City is still like the best-rated mm-hmm. superhero game of all time. But but Hulk was for a period of time, and we were really happy about it's that. It's still you know, a pretty rarefied air. Like that's yeah. I mean, it was not that many games that can really come close to that. Yeah, especially in the superhero area because you can do superhero games wrong on so many levels, you know, unfortunately. And I think we just really did it right. And um, it was a lot of fun. And so we talk, you know, when I, when I teach artificial intelligence, for example, I like to talk a lot about how we made the system pretty modular and easy to tune. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes a big part when you're thinking about the programming of it is you need to know how to really make things that, that you can sort of play um, over and over again for your players and then, make adjustments and go from there. And it's iterative. Really. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, cool. that's still to this date. That would probably be the one thing. And so, I bring it up in class a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you've got the big poster signed. In, I do. Have, office. Yeah, yeah. In my like office. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely something you take with you. For, literally. Yeah. I've literally, I, I was leaving when I was leaving uh, Vancouver. I took that with and I was like, I'm just going to keep this forever. Cause yep. you know, yeah. So if you're looking times. for it, you know, that, who now, has you, it now. now you know where my office is. Yeah. <laughs> It's the one with the Hulk poster. Yep. Yep. Well, Ben, thank you very much for coming on Serious yeah, Fun. It's absolutely. been a lot of fun. We will fun. have you on again. Um, I think that certain things will force our hand. Um, it's it's going to oh. be a, a Jedi or do or oh that's Jed, right Jedi yes. or Jedi kind of thing <laughs> Jedi or do moment yeah so so keep keep an eye on this space when we get closer to November or December Some Star Warriors yes <laughs> um, but uh, so you you will be back but again thank you for sharing your thoughts on Absolutely. game design and game development hopefully you listening have a little bit greater appreciation for uh, the craft and art of yeah. making games. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really you. appreciate and, it. And you're going to stick around and play some uh, some Defend Your Fandom with us real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. It's like <laughs> trying to remember, like, wait, what? I was, I I was like, it, it took me a second to remember because you had mentioned it, but then I forgot, of course. Yeah, okay, great. Media, but now I remember, yes. So we'll be right Absolutely. back with that in just a second. This is the segment on the show uh, called Defend Your Fandom, and uh, we've played this a couple times on the show before, so if you've listened to us before, you know it, but if you're tuning in just to hear the dulcet tones of Ben Geyser, it's your first time listening to <laughs> Serious Fun, and I believe that will happen. I believe we'll get a lot of first-time listeners out of this. I hope so. Um, but if you're just tuning in, the, the idea behind Defend Your Fandom, it's a thing we play when we get the chance here, where you know pop culture's big, it's vast, it's varied, there's a lot of different things out there that we um, just grow to, that mean something to us, that we're attached to but it might be hard to explain to other people or (laughs) other people might not necessarily understand why you like this thing that you like and so this is your opportunity where i will challenge you to introduce a thing that you've either been told that you're you you should be ashamed for liking or you're not really sure if you should like or is just so esoteric and weird it's hard to explain this is your chance benjamin geisler uh to defend your fandom yep so i've you know, I've got so many geeky things that it's hard to pick one. Right. But I'll pick one, um, which is um, I'm I'm a current well I'm a former DJ, but I still currently dabble in it. Right. And so I, when I was living in Madison, when I was a student at University of Wisconsin Madison, there was a 
electronic dance club they're called inferno that i got my start in and uh i would spin uh cds at the time now now i have to just not to interrupt but you've had a fascinating kind of life outside of games (laughs) and academia you started out as a theater major i did now you're then you now you've done djing yep (laughs) so you've done you've you've done a little bit of everything i've been all over entertainment is the key right yeah yeah so you're you are all about the serious fun lifestyle right (laughs) so so the inferno club in madison so you you were working there you're spinning i was djing there yep and um do you say spinning is that a thing we still do uh, yeah people say that I mean, even though even though I was spinning CDs, right, you can still call it that. And yeah. even though now it's you spin MP3s, but people right. still call it spinning. Sure. Um, but you know, it's something that I've kept doing over the years. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, I haven't been the re- most recently I've been out is uh, there's a guy in town here doing this event called Aftermath, which is synth pop. Mm-hmm. And I was there uh, about a year ago, and I have I haven't had time because I'm trying to do my dissertation, but. Um, but it, it is a guilty pleasure because it's sort of like I tell people this in academia and they're like, oh, you do what? You know, you, oh, you don't listen to classical music all the time. You know, right. it's because it's it's primarily dance music. It's, right. you know, electronic dance music. It's um, a little bit of industrial, but a lot of synth pop and a lot sure. of just techno-y type sounds. And um, it sometimes it's hard to explain like, well, why do I spend time doing that instead of maybe playing more piano? Because, I mean, I also used to play piano mm-hmm. and stuff, but... It's something that I just really enjoy doing, and I've always always been doing it, and let me always will. Let me ask you some questions because this is not an area of music that I'm terribly well versed in. Like I, I, I've heard terms like industrial and synth pop, and was it uh, grindcore? Is that a thing? Grindcore is a thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a um, thing. I, 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 these are. I'm not a huge that, fan of it, but yeah, no, yeah, these are thing, things yeah. I've heard, but they're all right. within this genre, right? And I also know Daft Punk. Sure. That's about as far as I go. Def one's kind of electro. Yeah, they're they're in there somewhere. So explain to me, like, what are kind of like, what's the difference between, say, industrial and synth pop, for example? So, like, industrial is more like, I mean, the classic example is Nine Inch Nails. Okay. It's heavier than synth pop, whereas synth pop's example might be Depeche Mode or something like that. Um, Industrial classically is a little more punk influenced than synth pop, which might be Mm -hmm. more new wave focused. Okay. Um, So they, you know, Industrial has with it a bit of metal influence, okay. plus punk, plus dance. Okay. And so it's kind of all of that mixed together. So if you've heard like Trent Reznor, anything he's done. It's anything he's done would industrial. be industrial. Okay. Um, Skinny Puppy, Ministry. Sure. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Rammstein. Sure. Rammstein. Uh, Rammstein, pronou- yes. Rammstein is how yes. you pronounce it. Yes. Is, I think that's how you pronounce it. I could be wrong. Rammstein. But. I think, yeah, because they're, yeah. The, they're those, German. Okay. Right? Those yeah. guys I'm familiar with. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, or, well, I mean... I really, a lot of people would say Marilyn Manson, but I wouldn't. It's more of rock. Yeah. Um, and I, I, not that I have anything against it, but that's me, that's more rock. So, so kind of the defining thing on some level is it has to be created through some sort of synthesizer or computer or some kind of... Right, like all of those are, right? right. Like synth pop, industrial. I mean, it's... And that's why they're easy to mix for me sure. as a DJ is that usually there's some kind of intro to the song that's mm-hmm. very, you know, it's at 128 BPM or whatever it's at. And it's just like a... A rhythm just like a mm-hmm. four four just you know rhythm that you can match to an, mm-hmm. an incoming song to an outgoing song and it becomes kind of therapeutic sure. when you're doing those those that beat matching so now i find that kind of interesting because i know that and i don't know if you, how much you want to talk about it yet but this is actually starting to find its way into sort of your professional and academic work too yeah yeah i mean i'm uh i did do a uh sort of a beat matching game on train jam which mm-hmm. is a, a game jam game jams for those not that might not know it they're um 
there are sort of periods of time where a bunch of game developers get together maybe for 48 hours or so and make a game. I got together with a guy that was I was working with at Human Head um, on the train that went from Chicago to San Francisco, and we made a game along with a bunch of other developers, and it was a beat matching game. And from that, I decided that I would like to make a full featured game. This was sort of just like a little prototype right. that's very much like Audio Surf, and you mix, uh, and you can actually get on itch.io. Um, it's called Fader. Mm-hmm. And Fader is, um, is just a very simple beat matching game, and I ended up on the train uh, mixing various tracks together, and then basically your job is to organize those tracks and right. mix, mix them back to, to, mm. the, to the tune of like a, there's a ship that's going around collecting things and your tracks will increase in volume or decrease in volume based on the pickups that you're getting in the game. Um, so it's a, it's a simple beat matching game. Yeah. I wanna go a little more complex for the one I'm making, but <clears throat> um, it is the game that I'm gonna use as my example for my, for my dissertation actually. Mm-hmm. Even though my dissertation is obviously more about programming languages, but I needed to pick some kind of a game I could use. Sure. So I figured it might as well be a beat matching game. Yeah. So yeah, that interest kind of permeated through to video yeah. games. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to see how this plays out. Like, yeah. I think it's because I, I have a sort of a fondness for rhythm and music games. Like There's some cool stuff. I, like Elite Beat Agents. Elite like, Beat I, Agents, I, that was I cool. I am still yeah, yeah. out here every day. If you ever ask me, Brian, what game do you want to see a sequel to? It's Elite Beat Agents. That would be cool. Um, um, have you played Crypt of the Necrodancer at all? I, I, I think I have it on Steam. Or I'm, it's I worth checking I, out. I feel like I have it somewhere. But yeah, I haven't had a chance to actually play it It's yet, a roguelike game, but you do it via beat matching, if right. that makes sense. Sure. I mean, it so doesn't, like when you're, but okay. <laughs> we're trying it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. It, it's just, um, yeah, it's fun. I like oh, it. Yeah, and uh, um, it, I don't know if you saw this. Harmonix just uh, is, I think, today released a card game called Drop Mix. Oh, okay. And so it's like I guess it like has like NFC cards, and then they all have like cl- uh, clips from songs on them. Okay. And so it's like a sort of like a card matching game. Where you're like playing colors, and you're trying to like get more of the board than your opponents. But the board is this thing. It's like that connects via Bluetooth to your iPad, and so you actually are kind of like creating music mixes oh, wow. as you go. Um, and Interesting. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. Like, because I've listened to some of the things people have essentially used or made playing this game. Hmm. And like some of the conversations, like people are probably going to use this to DJ at some point. Like, this I is, need to check that out. Harmonix yeah. just put that out. Yeah, I'll okay. show you. I'll show yeah, you I'll off mic when we're, when we're yeah, done yeah, here. Yeah. But like, it's just like I, I think it's. I mean, like that's such an un. I, I feel underserved um, genre. And yeah. So like, well, you know, I've developed an appreciation for it in working with it because it's very audio is a is like a underrepresented discipline within game development mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people don't spend much time in. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, and I think for that reason, we haven't seen many of these sort of audio based games and it would be nice to see a few more. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll get to see that the yeah. next one you're working on soon. So yeah, I, I hope I, so. <laughs> I, I, will, I mean, I will consider your defendum or your fandom defended. I mean, there wasn't much defending going on. It was just more of me asking questions. <laughs> right. um, well, it is. Cool. I mean, I, you know, I do get some, every once in a while I get this strange look for you're yeah. a DJ. What? Yeah. You're a DJ. <laughs> um, like I, I love like in like the Lego movie, the idea of being a DJ as a punchline, right? Like, <laughs> right. Yep. Um, but well, thanks again, Ben, for being sure on the thing. show. Um, Thank we will you. have you on again soon. Um, and of course we'll have you on for some other projects. We'll bring back game and learn eventually. Um, but uh, I believe the next one we do will probably be the one we do in November. So, all right, sounds good. But uh, that'll we'll, be fun. We'll have you on before then. So, thanks again, much appreciated, and uh, good talking to you. All as right, always. good talking to you. All right.
Well, there you have it. Another episode of Serious Fun is in the books. Thanks again to Ben Geiser for stopping by. And by the way, don't forget to check out all the other Phoenix Studios shows on uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. Uh, one other thing I want to let you know about, on Saturday, October 7th, from 10 a.m. until 4, the Brown County Library will be hosting their own Comic-Con event. And at that event, we will have two live recordings of Serious Fun. The first will be a crossover with Ryan Martin and Chuck Ryback's podcast, All the Rage, where we'll be talking about The Incredible Hulk. We'll also have a sit-down with Mike Norton, the creator of Battle Pug, co-creator of Revival, as well as an artist who's worked throughout the comics industry. All that's happening at Brown County Library Comic-Con, intend to forward the central branch of the library in downtown Green Bay. So hope to see you there. Until then, I'm Brian Carr, and now you go out and have some fun of your own. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.